Welcome to the Beef Brunch Educational Series podcast, bringing you information on cattle production and management in Louisiana and surrounding states. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining this morning's Beef Brunch Educational Series webinar. My name is Ashley Edwards, and I'm a livestock agent in the central, northwest, and northeast regions for the LSU Ag Center. Our speaker today is Dr. Christine Navarre. She's an extension veterinarian for the LSU Ag Center and will be discussing practical solutions, um, I guess the practical reasons, excuse me, for um, our shortage in food animal veterinarians. A few housekeeping notes before we start. We will be muting your microphones and we ask that you please keep them muted throughout the webinar. If you're joining us online via the Teams app or link, you can enter your questions into the Q&A box at any time during the presentation. If you're calling in, you can text your questions to me. My number is 512-818-5476. Again, if you're calling in and you have any questions throughout the webinar, you can text them to me at 512-818-5476. In the interest of time, we are going to wait and answer those questions at the end of the presentation. Dr. Navarro, I want to thank you for your time this morning, and I will turn it over to you to begin whenever you're ready. Great. Um, thanks, Dr. Edwards. Uh, thanks for everybody for, for tuning in. Um, so this morning, I'm going to talk about a CAST issue paper. I chaired a committee to uh, write this paper, and CAST is the Council on Ag Science and, and Technology. And so the topic was the impact of recruitment and retention of food animal veterinarians in the, in the U.S. food supply. So what does CAS do? Again, that's the Council on um, Agricultural Science and Technology. CAS brings together experts and to put together really credible, um, balanced science-based information. Um, it's, it's free access and so the idea there is to put together kind of white papers on on really big topics that have major implications to um, to agriculture, both plant and animal. And so for for this task force, again, I was the chair. We had and I have to thank everybody who participated in this. This is a major undertaking to do one of these. Um, but we had um, I had several veterinarians from all over the country and um, including Canada. Um, I had a couple of rural sociologists because a lot of what we're talking about today is, is um, rural practice. I had um, an ag economist uh, from Purdue who was just wonderful because even though, you know, a lot of this is based on supply and demand, which is a, you know, based on ag economics and, um, and she was just a wealth of knowledge. Um, you may recognize Dr. Clay Mathis. He's at the King Ranch, King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. And the reason I asked him to be on the committee was uh, that group is really into systems thinking uh, as it applies to the beef industry and, and beef operations. Uh, Dr. Mathis's dad was a veterinarian um, and he put together uh, the, the systems-based um, uh, causal loop diagram that I'm gonna show you a picture of at the, if it, at the end because this is a super complicated topic and, and a lot of factors are involved and a lot of them are interrelated. So we'll talk about that um, as we go. So why does this matter? Food animal veterinarians are um, important in safeguarding livestock, poultry and aquatic food animal health and welfare all along the form to 
fork um, continuum and it ensures the financial stability of producers. We help ensure global food security. Uh, if, you know, heaven forbid we have some type of foreign animal disease, um, then getting veterinarians out there is going to help ensure the financial stability of the of the US um, economy. So I as a veterinarians, we all take um, an oath when we when we graduate and get um, sent out into the world. And, you know, if if I'm sitting on an airplane next to somebody and they say, you know, well, well what do you do for a living? Most of the time I don't. Uh, actually uh, admit that I'm a veterinarian because what are they going to assume? They're going to assume that I work on dogs and cats and they're going to start to tell me about their dog, which I really don't want to hear about. I love my own dogs, but I don't want to work on other people's dogs. So a lot of people, just like they don't understand, the general public doesn't understand agriculture. They don't understand food animal veterinarians because it's not something that they um, run across. And so obviously as a veterinarian, you know, I'm in, uh, you know, in, involved in protection of animal health and welfare, relief of animal suffering. But one of the things as food animal veterinarians that we're also highly involved in is conservation of animal resources and, and promotion of public um, public health. And, and you know, I, it's one of the things that makes me excited about this part of the profession. So when people, use the shortage term and we're going to talk about why I don't like that term, but we need to talk about all the different uh, types of practices um, that veterinarians are involved in because there's a lot of overlap. So somebody says large animal vet, that means different things to different people. That might be cattle and horses. That might be, you know, there's mixed practitioners. There's food animal veterinarians. What does that mean? There's, you know, only beef food animal veterinarians. So again, there's, we're going to break it down. There's private practitioners, which most people are familiar with. So there are food animal exclusive veterinarians out there. Uh, they're the minority. Most veterinarians that work with food producing animals are going to be mixed animal practitioners, but there are consultants out there um, that only do feedlot or only do poultry or only do swine. And then there's public practice, which is also very important. Those are the people that work for USDA, they're, they're food inspectors, they work for FDA, CDC. We have a lot of veterinarians in the armed services, myself in academia, um, industry, so working for pharmaceuticals, um, all of that. So the, the question that the committee decided to really tackle, and this was kind of what focused our direction, was why is it difficult to recruit and retain food animal veterinarians? And I will tell you that we're going to talk mostly about rural practitioners. And because when it comes down to it, recruiting for an exclusive feedlot practice, there's there's a lot of perks to those jobs and it's not as difficult and we'll talk about why you know recruiting people to rural uh, communities is really important so it is a supply and demand problem and and where are we now the, the problem with that question is if we look at are we in a quote shortage do we have too many veterinarians are they maldistributed when you do the research to answer that question and you get the research compiled and out there, a lot of times it's already outdated. So 
we need in the in parts of the people in the industry are working on more real-time metrics to figure out what we can do now the the other problem there is the answers to that are not easily fixed because if if i need more veterinarians today it takes me a while to get those veterinarians now what is a shortage so most people when they say there's a shortage of large animal vets they they're usually talking about rural communities and the problem with the term shortage is it implies not enough people so it implies that well i have a shortage of vets so that means if i train more vets then it will fix the problem and unfortunately we've seen that it is much more uh, much more complicated um, that, than that so this shortage issue has been used to justify changes and and whether you agree with that or not it it's a it's a fact and so we have more veterinary schools we have increased class sizes and then sometimes we have proposed changes to the veterinary practice act so people say well i can't get a veterinarian to do this it's part of a veterinary practice act which means by law it has to be performed by a veterinarian um, they try to open up those practice acts and then let lay people um, do things and we'll talk about the, the pros and cons um, to that so you know again the question is does training more people actually fix this problem so we have to talk about demand before we talk about supply so most of the conversations around this talk about supply training more veterinary students recruiting more rural students but there's got to be a demand in a community for a, a you know veterinary practice is a business so you have to have a demand there that's large enough to support a business that's first and foremost then you have to have someone who wants to live in that community we'll, we'll talk about that so there was a recent uh, survey um, in a magazine called bovine veterinarian where they asked the key opinion le leaders in the veterinary profession to kind of um, look at or, or give their opinion on what is the future what to expect in the next um, 20 years and most of those experts recognize that there is going to be continued consolidation and vertical vertical integration of animal agriculture if you look at beef cow calf which is um, very little of it is integrated versus poultry which is very highly integrated there's a big difference in there but I think we can all agree that the beef industry is becoming more integrated and that's that's a different subject whether you like that or not but from a veterinary standpoint that integration means that we're probably going to need less veterinarians um, and those veterinarians are going to have different skills are going to offer different um, different services um, some of the other things that impact demand fluctuations in farm profitability, you know, really we we understand as veterinarians that, you know, this this in most cases is also a business. And so we can't price ourselves, you know, so high that, um, you know, you can't use our services. But we also have to be better at proving to you why 
you should use our services. So that value proposition is a two-way street. You know, a, a client has to really appreciate what their veterinarian can offer. You know, if, if all you want is an emergency every couple of years, you're not going to have a veterinarian. Um, I can tell you that, you know, when you first graduate from vet school, doing your first C-section on a cow is really exciting. Doing your first calf pulls are really exciting. But after a couple of those, that's hard work. That's not why most of us are still in being food animal veterinarians. It's not that day-to-day -day sick cow work. Our passion is preventive medicine. Our passion is helping you not have sick animals. And that is uh, going to be more profitable for use. But we're not always really good at explaining those services and giving you that, that value proposition. And when you see some of the practice acts being opened and, and you know, things that you might think it's, well, I want a layperson to do this because they might be cheaper um, and I, maybe I can't get a veterinarian. But again, that, that veterinarian has to make a living. Um, the Practice Act is there to protect you from malpractice. So as a veterinarian, if I go out and I do a bad job, you can call the veterinary board and, and, and put in a complaint to me. When you have lay people doing these practices, there is nobody to complain to um, if there's a bad if there's a bad actor out there. So if you look at the, the expenditures, I think a lot of times producers only think of veterinarians as a cost. And again, we have to be better at showing you why we can hopefully make you money. Uh, but veterinary medicine is about 4% um, of those total costs. By and large, feed, feed, feed. Uh, and we need to figure out how to feed cattle more appropriately when we start looking at what are we going to not necessarily cut back on because feed, properly feeding is, is the most important thing you're going to do, but we have to do it cost, um, cost effectively. So from a public practice uh, standpoint, um, we have this societal perception. So COVID-19 has really brought to light some of our real problems in public health and that all of a sudden we want people to be out there fixing this problem, and yet we have eroded those systems because of funding for years and years. So you can't just ramp up uh, vaccine production very easily, although we've seen an amazing job at that. You can't just train new researchers overnight. You've, you've got to, and there's a fine line to that. You don't want to, you know, waste that money, but uh, you know, there's the perception of what we need versus the funding challenges, and those are real. We also have, you know, some what I'll call backyard food animals. So, you know, a lot of people have, have a few chickens around, and they don't necessarily think of those as food animals, but they are. They are legally a food animal, and those might potentially have diseases that can then be a risk to our commercial poultry industry. And finding a veterinarian to work on those backyard um, poultry is really, really difficult. So that is a public health service. We need veterinarians. Um, again, first of all, they have to be willing to offer that service. And we have to realize that when we talk about rural mixed practices, you are competing 
with dog and cat owners who are, are willing to spend a lot of money on their on their pets. So some of the demand solutions, again, we have to be better at educating you and the public about veterinarians, making sure you know we help you understand why prevention is, is better and, and how we can help that, how we can integrate um, nutrition and, and health and, and all the things that you think about on a daily basis. Um, and then getting the public to understand the importance of One Health and how veterinarians are um, involved with that. Uh, we do need to have resources for non-food animal veterinarians to understand animal ag. You know, we train a lot of veterinarians and those veterinarians are coming from the general public, which means on average, 1% of those veterinarians are going to have a basic knowledge of agriculture. So we have to make sure that we keep those, but also that um, we um, educate those that have no idea about farm animals, um, making sure that they don't have the same misconceptions about animal agriculture as the general public um, does. We've got to have, you know, there, this is an international business. Um, the beef industry is international and, and veterinarians um, can take care, take advantage of some international opportunities. We also have to really think about our par partnerships with wildlife because that wildlife interface is hugely important for um, disease transmission. So now on to supply, which is, is really where most of the research is. But again, I don't want to minimize the demand because for a business, a veterinary business to offer large animal services, to have inventory that doesn't go bad and they've lost all that money because they don't have enough clients to have the equipment, to have the, the uh, labor to back your practice up and that you have to have enough clients to make, to make that work from a business um, standpoint. So for an inadequate supply, we have to recruit, we have to train, and then we have to retain. And many of the factors that influence recruitment also influence retention. When we looked at, at putting this paper together, we originally had them split, but we realized that there's really quite a bit of overlap, so, so we lumped them together. So um, going forward, we will kind of talk of these, about these together and then we'll talk about training at the end. So student debt. Student debt is the biggest issue facing the entire uh, profession. Um, it has a serious impact of, of retention, vet retention, and I'm not talking about just uh, rural practitioners. I'm talking about everyone because it's, it's a problem for small animal practitioners too. Uh, you look at the student debt to income uh, ratio, a healthy debt to income ratio is one to one. So if I'm going to get a job, um, my starting salary is $100,000, then I can um, healthily service $100,000 in debt. Well, right now, the debt to income ratio on average for the veterinary profession is 2.3 to one. So if the average starting salary is seventy dollars to $80,000, uh, the debt is approaching $200,000. That is unsustainable. Now, food animal graduates entering food animal exclusive, I'm not talking about most of the practices you're familiar with. I'm talking about 
Feedlot Health, which employs consulting veterinarians all over the US and Canada. Um, all they do is consulting, all they do is feedlots. Um, they have very, um, they have higher salaries, they have good working conditions, but there are a few of those jobs and you've got to be really on your game to get offered a job with that, with that group. Um, when you look at rural practice, the salaries are low. The debt is still high. Now, the living um, cost of living is usually lower, but you still have that debt to, to service. And it's a, just a major um, impact on getting veterinarians to stay in the profession. I think we can still recruit young people because they don't think about the debt um, necessarily until they have to start paying it off. Even though we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it. So some of the debt solutions, um, most of them are largely after the fact and they are tied to rural practice. And this is, this is good. Um, the veterinary medical loan repayment program, uh, there are state programs, but what we don't know, because these are federal and state funds, so these are things that we are paying for, but we don't know the long-term impact of the retention. So if I, let's say that the northeast corner of Louisiana is an underserved area, and, the, and that is, you know, under that program, the VLR, uh, VMLRMP program, Okay, I'm going to give a veterinarian $25,000 in debt relief for three years to stay in that area. Once that three years is up, we don't know how many of those veterinarians actually stay there. Um, and there's conflicting results. And we not only looked at the veterinary literature when we read in this, but the reason I wanted some rural sociologists on this was because they look at what happens on the human side. You know, this is not just a problem for veterinarians, this is a problem recruiting uh, physicians, dentists, clergy, all, all of those, um, all of those things. So um, if you look at healthcare workers, um, short-term retention was high, but, but long-term retention is, is actually not very good. Um, in the short term for the veterinary medical loan repayment program, it looks like the retention is high, but again, we need to know is it really working long term to determine do we need to continue to fund the, that program? The elephant in the room is how do we decrease the actual debt load at graduation? And, and this is not just a problem on from a veterinary school standpoint, but law school, med school, they've all increased costs. Um, overall tuition has um, has increased. The um, one of the hypotheses, so the the average debt load is actually decreasing but the reason for that is thought to be that more students of means are applying to veterinary school meaning their parents are able to help them pay for veterinary school that is not necessarily a good thing um, for recruiting rural um, students it, it has def definite diversity implications so part of the problem is just rural life. Um, you know, again, this is a problem not just for veterinarians, but other professions is, you know, the lack of social or and cultural opportunities. Problems finding work for significant others is a big one. Schools, childcare, emergency services. So if you live in the city and you have a small animal practice, 
there are emergency practices that you don't do emergency duty. Um, so you're not working at night. You send your clients um, to that emergency clinic. Has a huge um, impact on the, the the stress level of those veterinarians and you know their happiness and willingness to stay in the pr profession. Um, mental health issues are a big problem in the in the veterinary profession, but also it's even um, a, a problem in um, rural agricultural workers. Our rural practice salaries are lower. Um, again, that is somewhat offset by cost of living, but not totally. Um, rural practice, again, there's no emergency duty, no emergency clinic to send people to. There's long work hours and over the years that that tends to wear on you. you. You don't have a lot of family time. So these are things that we have to fix or we're not going to be able to keep people in these in these practices. Um, and if you look here at um, who wants to work fewer hours per week and a higher percentage of those practitioners in rural areas state that they want to work fewer hours um, per week. So what are we going to do about that? Um, solutions. So one of the things that gets talked about quite a bit is we just need to recruit more students from rural communities. Well, actually, recent data shows that one in five students are from rural communities and many of those come in and I can attest to this. They're interested in, in food animal um, medicine. They, they want to go back to those um, communities. So, so why can't we either get them there or keep them there or, or both? So a consistent finding in looking at physicians and physician assistant studies talks about rural returners. Community attachment. So we talked about all the things that you give up living in a rural community, but if your family is there, you have friends there, you grew up there, you're that's home. You're you're willing to give up some of those things as long as you're you're close to family. So community attachment is very critical for residential intentions and long term uh, retention of people in rural communities. And so if you need a professional, you know, finding a way to recruit someone from that area, finding a way to help them get through school is probably something that um, could, could work in some situations. We have to have cooperation between practices. We have to have childcare solutions. We have to have um, use of technical staff. We have to make the, the, the days of a solo practitioner working 100 hours plus a week by themselves week after week, year after year is, is no longer feasible. The, the young people, and, and, and rightly so, some people think, you know, they, they, they want that balance. They want to spend time with their kids. Um, they, they are willing to work hard, but they're not willing to give it all up on the other end. And so we've got to figure out ways um, to fix that. So there are some demographic issues. So there's not a lot of data here, but if you look at members of AABP, this is American Association of Bovine Practitioners. So these are the cattle vets in North America, uh, US and, and Canada and, and a few um, international. There's less diversity of race. Now, race, racial diversity is an issue for the whole profession, um, but there, um, 
it's a gender problem really because most of our students are female most of the veterinarians out there in the general population are female but when you look at AABP members bovine practitioners which are likely rural mixed practitioners um, we don't have a lot of women now I know right as I said this a lot of you are speculating why that is but I'm going to tell you we do not know why that is um, is there some discrimination yes but I can tell you I don't you know I've I've rarely felt discriminated against um, as a woman, either by veterinarians or the producers I, I work with. Um, is it a choice? Um, I personally believe, this is my, my opinion, I have nothing to back this up, is that this is a choice. Um, men are more likely to have positive attitudes towards rural life than women. That's in general, not veterinarians. So there's research to back that up. Um, is it generational? So we not only have more women in the profession, but they're a different generation. So how do you se separate out? Is it just all young people that are not willing to go to those rural areas? And it wouldn't matter if they were men or women or or they're both together. So we need more data to understand the why, because eventually those male practitioners are retiring and they're being replaced by females because that is the really the only choice. Um, it's not the only choice, but it is the majority of the choice. So practice attributes, and this is for veterinarians, but it's really important when you think about, you know, your veterinarian as a business uh, are particularly important to retention. So again, vet students these days, they're very driven, they're very business-minded, um, they want good practice environments. Uh, we need sustainable producers, again, that have to that demand modern, up-to-date practices. The, the days of, you know, having somebody who just, you know, is, is satisfied with just doing emergency work are, are gone. That, again, that is not what excites us and makes us stay. We're willing to put up with some of those, to do the other things, the preventive medicine, the, the looking at your operation as a whole, um, because that's what excites us and that's what excites um, young veterinarians and is gonna attract them. Then we have to figure out how um, to keep that. Um, we want good facilities, um, you know, we're willing, yes, we know we're working outside a lot, the conditions aren't always great, but we're willing to give that up if there's some other things. Um, Work-life balance, um, is a kind of a tired term. I don't really like it because I've never found a balance, but you know, you have to have time to, to prioritize your family at, at times. And women, um, at least 10, and I'm generalizing it, which I hate to do, but research shows that women have a, put a higher priority on that family time. And so if we have mostly women coming into the profession, we have to fix those issues. We have to fix the salary issues. So some solutions, again, we need business models. Um, we have to shift from a fee for service task fee to a fee for advice or information. We have to look at practice diversification. So you might have a veterinarian who only works on cattle, but the practice does both large animal and small animal because that diversification actually protects you um, from down time. So if there's a drought, if you're in a cow-calf practice and there's a drought and all the producers around you sell off for a while, you know, your income is going to go down. And when you have a small animal part of that, 
practice that kind of kind of pick that up. But again, that means you're always competing against um, that small animal part of that that business. Um, telehealth um, is really come into play here lately. Um, you know, doing office visits over the the computer. Um, consulting veterinarians, feedlot veterinarians have been using telehealth for years and years. They they train the feedlot crews to do their own necropsies. They send pictures in. They get the they get data. Um, basically, um, there's a there's a group of practices in Texas who have basically taken on solving. They they needed to recruit young women veterinarians, and but childcare was a major problem for them. So they have basically bought a house, hired their own. Uh, person, uh, they they help take care of each other's kids, so they have worked out the the childcare um, issue at least for their practice, and we need more examples of how um, to do that. And mentoring is a is a big um, part of this. You know, the days of just you know hiring your your new grad and and throwing them out in the world. You know, the, the students don't want the, that these days, and it, it's not good for for business either. So again, telehealth has really come on. Some of you may have, you know, actually um, had an office visit um, with your physician over telehealth, um, but it's something that uh, is going to be um, used more and more um, in the future. So the public practice supply, again, we need better awareness of the contributions of veterinarians to public health, academia, research. Um, we need that from the public, we need that from the students, and we need it within the veterinary profession. We need competitive salaries in public practice, and um, we need help funding uh, postgraduate training because a lot of these public practice jobs, you have to have school beyond vet school. So think about a student who's already graduating with $200,000 in debt, is now going to delay servicing that debt for three years and take on more debt um, is simply very difficult to get people to do that. And so um, I'm I'm about, you know, the government necessarily not getting in our business, but there are things that um, if we're if we're careful with our federal funds, these are the things we need to prioritize. So in the paper, we we didn't have a magic bullet solution um, because this is super complicated. And what we did was try to, to lay out the problems, lay out the issues, and then lay out all of the solutions that have been proposed. And there is not a, an easy fix. Just train, recruiting more kids from rural communities, Training more of them is not going to fix the problem. We have been doing that now for 20 years. I've been involved in this issue for 20 years, and we tried that, and it didn't work long term. Um, so it is a, a multifactorial problem, but this is just a snapshot. There's a couple pages of, of um, strategies and, and tactics that different groups um, can look at. Um, training. So we've got to train people adequately to maintain relevance to animal agriculture. So uh, you know, we have to keep on the on the forefront. And that is um, that's difficult these days because at the veterinary colleges, we've had an erosion of the food animal education. Um, it's just a fact. And, and, and it's a problem. I believe at LSU, it's a problem at many veterinary schools where um, the small animal has um, gotten more attention in the classroom, in the clinics, with equipment, 
um, with numbers of faculty. And there's only so much you can do when you don't have enough faculty. And training food animal veterinarians is not necessarily as costly. You don't need a lot of fancy equipment, but you need people and you need and you need time. Um, and having adequately trained people, if you throw somebody out into the world to do a job and they're not prepared, then they're less likely to stay in their job. They are less likely to be happy and to feel like they're contributing. Um, and so competence is an important component of employability and employability impacts professional success, satisfaction, well-being, and it, and it impacts retention. So some of the solutions, they're not easy either. Um, centers of excellence. So it doesn't necessarily mean that every vet school has to be experts and train all their students to be experts in feedlots, but we need some of those and we need to be able to um, have access to all students have access to those. But that requires talking about funding across university systems, which is the biggest, um, the biggest barrier. Um, Post-DVM training is expensive, so we need extra training. So after I finished vet school, I was in practice for a year and then I went and did a residency and a master's degree for three more years. So I did not start practicing until I was I was 28 um, and actually making a living. Um, and so and I had a lot of debt to, to, to pay off. And so it's just, you know, it's a it's a um, it's a fact that we need to, to deal with. More and more industries are training um, their own. And so if you look at the poultry industry, the poultry industry is training their their vets or training the other um, vets. It's not happening necessarily always at um, universities. So this is uh, just a snapshot of part of our of our systems based causal loop diagram. And again, I want to thank Dr. Clay Mathis for agreeing to serve on this committee. He's an extremely busy man. Um, but this this was to me the highlight of the paper because in one place it you you see how many factors there are and how interrelated they are, and so we can't just look at this and and have a, a there is no quick fix um, to this and it's everybody's problem. So you know you you can't if you're a producer out there and you need a veterinarian, there's not one in your community. You need to be part of the solution as well as you know the veterinary schools and the practitioners out there that are already um, that are already out there so that is all i have and uh i y'all know how to get in touch with me um talk to your county agent there's my email i'm happy to talk uh about um anything health related but this is something that uh has been near and dear to my heart um, and I want to thank CAST for um, actually giving us the resources to um, put this together. And again, thank the committee who did a lot of work on this. Thank you, Dr. Navarro. I know that that's a great perspective, not only for our producers, but for um, some of the students that I'm sure are going to see this, um, that are looking at going to veterinary school or already in veterinary school. So I'm going to try to share my slides, or excuse me, my screen really quick. If I can, I can never get this to navigate quite well.
Are you still sharing, Dr. Navarre? Um, maybe I am. Let me uh, stop sharing. Sorry about that. No, okay. that's okay. So I should be able to, yeah. to use. I should be more proficient in this <laughs> than I am by now. OK, hopefully you all can see my screen there. Um, we do have a survey at the end of each of our webinars, and this is just a, a general um, survey that takes two to three minutes. We would just like to hear from you all hear from hear what topics you would like to see in the future. So if you don't mind, please doing this, um, it would be be very, very much appreciated. There's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can um, use your camera and view this little QR code here on the right. A little banner will pop up at the top of your phone and you should be able to click on that and move forward with the survey. I will also post the survey link uh, in the recording for this. So in the podcast or in the um, video description, you'll be able to access a link down there on the bottom. Um, just a few more minutes. I don't have any questions yet, but if um, if you have questions, please get those to the Q&A box or um, send them to me. And I am going to go ahead and um, start to wrap up. If you have questions, again, get them in at the last minute. But we want to thank you all for joining us today in our Beef Brunch webinar this morning. And Dr. Navarre, thank you again for your perspective on this and your time um, for this presentation. We will be posting this recording online, as I said a minute ago. It'll be up in the next few days. You can find that at LSU Ag Center Livestock on YouTube or on our Beef Brunch page, which is lsuagcenter.com forward slash Beef Brunch, and it will be posted under our past webinars. We're still working on our schedule for the upcoming months, um, but we will get our topic and presenter for the upcoming um, February webinar out to you all soon. The webinar will be at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 9th. Again, I'll have all that information posted on the Beef Brunch website. Please do not forget to complete that survey. Um, again, takes two to three minutes and it is essential to continuing these webinars in the future. Lastly, if you have any other questions regarding the Beef Brunch educational series, please feel free to contact me. Again, my name is Ashley Edwards. Um, my email is akedwards at agcenter.lsu.edu and I'll have all that information in the um, video description as well. Dr. Navarre, I don't see any questions um, popping up at this time. So again, thank you for your time and I hope that you all have a great week. Welcome. Thanks, everybody.